Let us pray for open and receptive hearts for the reading and preaching of God's holy word. Gracious God, as we turn to your word, may your spirit rest on us. Help us to be steadfast in our hearing, in our speaking, in our believing, and in our living. Through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Our Old Testament lesson is taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 34, verses 1 through 8. The word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. Let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets out of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Allison. If you could imagine... One friend who is in an abusive church in which she is made to feel like a pariah, shamed for her sin, and though she would never admit it, she resents God's law, she resents his commandments in scripture because she experiences them as clubs with which she is bludgeoned Sunday after Sunday. She personally has more scripture memorized than anyone else you know, but in her heart, she feels death. And then if you could imagine another friend who got out of that church as soon as they could, and he's now in a church, a spiritual community where things are different. You recently found out, though, that he just left his wife and his four children for another woman with whom he was having an affair, and you try to talk to him about it. You raise questions. How do you justify this biblically? How do you justify treating your wife this way? What about your kids? What about this affair? And he simply push, pushes it off and says, hey, I have been freed from the oppressive weight of the law. I am living by grace. Two very unhealthy approaches. Two very unbiblical ways to relate to God's instruction, his law, his word, his commandments. What is the Christian's relationship with the law of God, with his commands? How do they relate to us? We're going to look at a passage in Galatians 3 where Paul, the apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives us a very good part of that answer. It's Galatians 3. I'm going to read verses 19 through 25. This is the word of God. He asks, what then was the purpose of the law? That's the commandments in the Old Testament. He says, it was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put in effect 
through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scriptures declare that the whole world is a prisoner of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. And so the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. For now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. This is God's word. What do we see here? What we see here, first of all, is the inescapability of God's law. Uh, God's law represents his heart, his desires. He says in verse 19, verse 20, he says it was put into place as a mediator who represents God. It, It shows us what God loves. His word shows us what he hates. And it's therefore an expression of his character, which does not change. The moral law expressed in scripture, Old and New Testament alike, reflects who God is and and reflects the way in which he built the cosmos and how he intended it to to continue. Paul elsewhere says in Romans 2, he says, when Gentiles who don't have the law, they don't know anything about the Bible. Do by nature things required by the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Uh, it's, it's inescapable. Uh, you can say, hey, I don't really like this commandment or I don't really like that commandment, but you're never really going to get away from the ethical categories of good and evil, of right and wrong, of justice and injustice, uh, because God has grounded them in the nature of reality. Um, you know, I mean, when I was a kid, you know, I believe very strongly that all truth was relative to the perception of the individual. It's something we actually had to memorize for one of my classes in, in high school. And I look back on that now as something that it was very naive, even though it's a very pervasively held perspective. But it's really impossible to behave as if there are no categories of good and evil. It's impossible to exist as if there were no moral law. The uh, late Arthur Leff of Harvard Law School, 40 years ago. He himself was an atheist, but he put his finger on the relative absurdity of trying to do ethics and therefore law in a non-theistic context in which everything ultimately becomes arbitrary because there is no God. And in a widely read article uh, called Unspeakable Ethics, Unnatural Law, he wrestled with the tension between our own human sense of justice and the fact that for him such justice had no real normativity. Uh, There was no ground for it. And every time we want to conclude that something is good or something is evil, he comes back to the playground rejoinder and says, says who? Without a God, no one, no one can say. And so after a lengthy discussion, he concludes his remarks this way. He says this, he says, we really have no choice but to be arbitrary to make stuff up. All I can say is this. It looks as if we are all we have. As things now stand, everything is up for grabs. Nevertheless, napalming babies is bad. Starving the poor is wicked. Buying and selling each other is depraved. Those who stood up to and died resisting Hitler and Stalin and Amin and Pol Pot and General Custer too have earned salvation. And those who acquiesce deserve to be damned. There is no, there is in the world such a thing as evil. And then he concludes, All together now, says who? 
And with a note of irony, he concludes by saying, God help us. See, it's inescapable. It's, it's the story that Francis Schaeffer used to tell back in the 1960s and 70s about, uh, you know, a, a woman trying to cross the street. If you can imagine Skinker Boulevard uh, that way. Imagine Skinker Boulevard. I'm facing the wrong direction. Uh, and, and there's a little old lady. She's, she's really old. She's like 97 years old. And she's trying to cross Skinker to get over to Forest Park to play around the golf. And she's a little unsteady. Uh, she's going to use a cart, but she's a little unsteady, and, and, and she's trying to cross the street, and you're approaching her. You're going to have to walk right past her, and he says you have three options. First option, you can try not to make eye contact, keep walking, and hope she doesn't stop and ask you for help. Or second option, you could set your bags down and actually stop and help her across the street. Or third option, you can shove her in front of a car. And if there is no right or wrong, if there is no God, if there is no God's law written on the heart, in, imbued in creation, flowing from eternity into this temporary thing we call time and space, if there isn't, for all there is, then those are three equally valid options. And yet the fact of the matter is you cannot live that way. We lock up people who live that way. We lock up people who don't believe in right and wrong. We label them sociopaths. We, we protect society from them because the reality is there is moral law written in God's heart flowing to us, expressed here in Scripture. The fact that you can't live as if there's not is evidence itself telling you that the fiction of atheism is a lie. It does not accord with reality that there is a God. And God's law, is, it's inescapable. Uh, the fact of the matter is moral relativism always empowers the strong against the weak and the rich against the poor. And we have a God in the Bible who is a God of justice, who speaks up for the weak and for the poor and for those that are not and those that lack wisdom to be their defender and identifies himself as such. You can say religion is a load of hooey, but relativism cannot be lived. It's inescapable. And it's also scary because God's law shows us that we can never escape his judgment. It's what we saw in verse 19. Paul says, what then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions, because of our, because of our sins. We like to think of God as something so much smaller than he actually is. We imagine a kind of generalized love of God that just flows equally toward everything and he's just tremendously nice to everybody and tremendously understanding of our sin and our rebellion. I remember myself as a young, uh, as, a, uh, as, an, as an atheist, or at least borderline atheist at least, in high school, um, I had started to believe that maybe there was a God. I had started to doubt my doubts and question my atheism and I remember having to read for American literature class Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Don't know if you read that one. Um, I was hot and bothered. It was not okay. I was so angry at this notion of a God who would damn someone to hell, a God who would judge sin, a God who would judge the unjust. And, and yet, as I came to Christ and began to grapple with the biblical God, I found out that the biblical God is far larger and far more complex than I had assumed and that my evil and my injustice and my brokenness is far worse than I ever realized. And, and I, develop, I had developed in kind of in my own imagination a God who was completely benign and unthreatening, and yet I didn't ask whether such a God could actually be good. 
I've told the story many times of the good policeman. It's the only sermon illustration I've ever made up from scratch. Um, and so I use it a lot because um, I don't have to attribute it to anybody. Um, the good policeman was uh, driving down Skinker Boulevard. It's always Skinker Boulevard, and it always, it's always the same demographic in these stories. There's an elderly lady who is, uh, she is, you know, starting to, you know, pack goods into her car. You know, she's spent, you know, the last, you know, three months collecting donations for poor sick children in India. And she has been up all night, you know, knitting individual little, you know, uh, uh, socks for them. And, and she's loading all of these goods for the poor into her car so that she can take them and mail them off to India. And, and these three, uh, uh, you know, young men, outstate Missouri boys in their pickup drive up and they see her and they stop and they get out of their truck and there are three of them and they grab the little old lady and one of them grows and goes through her bag and takes out all the money and then they take these little you know booties and stuff that she's sending you throw them all over the, the street and then they kick the old woman to the curb and they begin beating her and even from a distance the good policeman can hear the bones cracking and she's crying for help and she's bleeding and then one of them pulls out a switchblade and it, it's terrible but the good policeman sees this and so he's at a distance, he turns his sirens on, and he fires up his, his, his cruiser, and the, 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 these three Missouri boys, they see what's happening, they see the cop, he, they're coming for him, and so they're kind of trying to get back in their vehicle, and yet the good policeman swerves in front of them and pins their vehicle up against the curb, so they can't get out, and the good policeman gets out, and he runs up, and he goes up to the open window, the driver's side, and he thrusts his, heart, his hand into the pickup, and he says, hi. I'm the good policeman, and I love you. What's wrong with the story of the good policeman? Is he good? Or would a good policeman care about justice? Would the blood of the victim cry out to a good policeman? Would a good policeman need to see justice done in the face of hate and cruelty and evil? A good God is not like the good policeman. A good God is a God of justice. And for me, that is a scary thought because I am not just. He is good and I am not good. And that is what terrifies me because God's goodness is precisely what compels him toward wrath in the face of evil and cruelty and injustice and rebellion. We see here the inescapability of God's law. We also see the function of God's law, though. Because God's law, Paul explains, Scripture explains, was given to be a tutor, a teacher, to show us of our need for the gospel, to point us and lead us to Christ. Verse 24, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. It's what theologians call the pedagogical use of God's law, the teaching use of God's law. It's, it's like uh, you know, a preacher long ago uh, working in the streets of London uh, was, was, was trying to help out some street children and he was getting ready to give them a meal and, and he told one boy who was just filthy, hey, I need you to go wash your face. Because you're, you're filthy. It's disgusting. You can't go to the table like that. So the kid comes and you hear water running and, and he rubs his face some and he comes back and it's still coal dust everywhere. You know, he's just covered in filth. And, and he says, I told you to wash. And he says, but, but, but sir, I did. 
And, and so he gets out a mirror and he gets down on the ground with this street urchin and he, he has him look in the mirror and, and the little boy, as he looks in the mirror and sees his reflection and sees all of the filth, his eyes grow huge. He had no idea. And that's what God's law is for us. It is a mirror seeing, hey, look, there's stuff that's not good. You need cleaning. You need washing. Only you can't wash yourself. You need Jesus. He says it was written, it's given to us to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. It's a tutor to show us our need for the gospel. That's what God's commandments show us. It shows us how much we need a bath. And God's law is, it's not exclusively a tutor to show us our need for grace uh, in performing that function. It is, of course, also showing us what faith and love look like so that biblical law is still a means through which God instructs us. But its primary function in this passage is is the, the overarching function is pedagogical to train us to look outside ourselves to Jesus. That means we need to be able to learn to distinguish between God's law and God's gospel. Law, on the one hand, is what God commands of us, and gospel is the grace that God gives to us. Tim Keller explains it this way. He says this. He says, if I promise you $1,000, and all you have to do is come up here and get it, that is gospel. It is free grace. To get it, all you have to do is believe. But if I instead offer to give you $1,000 if you come landscape my garden for me, then that's actually conditional. It's offered on the basis of law. You have to do something. Uh, you know, the gospel and law are two completely different ways of obtaining something. Something can, can come to you freely by grace through the gospel, or it can come to you by law, but it can never come to you by both. It's important to learn to distinguish law from gospel. Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer 500 years ago, said this. He said, distinguishing between law and gospel is the highest art in Christendom. One who, one who every person who values the name Christian ought to recognize, know, and possess. Where this skill is lacking, it is not possible to tell who is a Christian and who is a pagan. That much is at stake in this distinction. See, law is everything God requires of us. Law is his commandments, his requirements, his expectations, the responsibilities he places upon us. Law is anything that God gives to us as, a, as, as an expectation. And yet, yet gospel is the opposite of law. Gospel is everything God provides for us. Gospel is what God does for us. It's God's grace. It's God's mercy towards sinners. It's God's favoring the weak and the broken and the shameful. God God's gospel describes his act of rescuing us and includes his compassion towards us. His adoption of us into his family is clothing us with the righteousness of Christ, is forgiving us all of our sins. Gospel includes God's promises to bless us. Law is what we do and gospel is what God does for us. So we're going to play a little game this morning. It's called Law or Gospel. And there are two possible answers. You don't have to do it out loud. You can do it under your breath, or you can shout it, stand on your pew if you want. We're we're not that kind of Presbyterian. You can do whatever you want. But is it law or is it gospel? You shall not commit murder. You guys are good. 100% so far. As far as the east is from the west so far, shall I remove your sins from you? I've been in this church a while. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul and all of your strength. Your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. 
God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. Well, you're a little more hesitant there. <laughs> the, Lord your God, the Lord your God is the God of the poor, of the alien, of the stranger, and of the widow. <laughs> you guys are good. You shall love the alien and the stranger and the poor and the widow. Oh, a social justice warrior just turned over in their grave, but you got it. You got it. Law and gospel. It, it's to be clear about this because law is what's going to drive us to Christ and gospel is what he's going to do to us when we come. Paul has been clear throughout about what God's law what biblical principles cannot do, says it in verse 21, if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But that hasn't happened. Uh, you know, uh, when I uh, used to teach the children's catechism class, which we'd do whenever, whenever there were a whole bunch of kids who wanted to come to communion, uh, we'd, we'd get them together for a class. And, and one of the things that I would do to help them understand the gospel and its distinction from law is, is we would um, make a little, get a little egg, fresh egg, and, and dress them up as Humpty Dumpty, put a little top hat on them and googly eyes and draw them and, and all of that. And, and then we'd go up to the top of the church and open a window. And, uh, and, and he would have a great fall. And some of those boys loved that part of it, you know, getting to throw eggs out of church. It was awesome. And so then, of course, I'd get parental permission. And then we'd go walk outside and go around to the sidewalk and look down at Humpty Dumpty. And I'd pull out the Ten Commandments and ask, okay, who's going to put Humpty back together again? And, and nobody could do it because law can't do that. God's commandments can't do that. You know, all the king's horsemen couldn't put Humpty together again. Uh, it's like that little boy cleaning his face. You know, the mirror is good to show you that you're broken. But if you were to take shards of mirror and try to scrub your face with it, you're just going to get all cut up and bloody and it's going to get worse. That's what religion does. That's what law does. Law is there. It can show us how damaged we are. Law, you can take a picture of an egg, everything God intended Humpty to be, and hold it up to him, and all it's going to do is show Humpty that he can't put himself back together again because the law shows us how broken we are. Only Jesus can put Humpty together again. Uh, and yet this desire to um, fix ourselves, to, to, to live by our achievement, it's, it's so powerful inside of us and we don't always see it. You know, I remember once my Mini Cooper, I had a Mini Cooper for 13 years. Finally, I had to give it away because it cost more than a car payment to keep that thing running. It was uh, the English build wonderful literature. Um, but um, I remember once my Mini Cooper uh, got rear-ended, just totally flattened the back of it, popped that sucker open, all the liquids inside exploded. It was a disaster. And uh, so my insurance sent me to Enterprise Rent-A-Company for uh, a wonderful firm. It was not their best day to get a rental car, um, and uh, they actually had only one car left on the lot, and it was almost closing time, and it was a four-door white Kia with a mismatched hood and a big gash in the back of it, and the Enterprise rep told me it's totally drivable. And I remember driving that thing around, and I was slumped down as far into the seat as I could get. My eyeballs were just barely above the dashboard. And I thought, oh, I have to go to church and pick something up. I don't want anybody to see me in this thing. And it was convicting. Just this shame came over me how I had been building a part of my identity, my significance on having a cute, sexy little, little, little road car uh, with curves and no gash in the back and not a mismatched hood. And, uh, you know, how shallow is that? How vacuous was I? 
uh, but, you know, we don't see it. And what the gospel does, or what the, the word of God, what the law of God does is it shows us, yeah, Greg, you're broken too. You're proudful too. You're arrogant too. It's what they do to drive us to Christ. And when you get the gospel, those other voices, they don't weigh so heavily. That old foundation gets broken up. Nathan Cole In 1741, after hearing George Whitfield preach the gospel, he said this. He said, my hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. By God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up and I saw that my righteousness would not save me. It's the inescapability of God's law we see here. We see the function of God's law to drive us outside ourselves to Jesus. And finally, we see the point where law and gospel actually come together because law and gospel do come together. They're not opposed. In verse 21, Paul says, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Is law opposed to gospel? He says, absolutely not. You can't have any real knowledge of God, the real God of the Bible, without holding these two things tightly together. You know, there are churches that are all about law. Do better. Yeah, Jesus says you, but, and then they take back the grace as soon as they can, and it leaves you crushed Uh, and the gospel is what gets lost. And there are other churches that are, they say they're about grace, but ultimately they don't have a God who never gets angry, who's everything's permissible, and it sounds so inclusive, and it sounds so understanding, but it's not the God Jesus taught. And that God we already saw is not even good because he's not just. Don't tell me I don't need a savior. I know better than you. And what gets lost again is the gospel because the gospel is only evident when law and gospel come together in the God of the Bible. It's a passage that, that we read just a minute ago uh, from Exodus 34 where Moses uh, wants to see God. And God says, I'm going to show you all of my goodness is going to pass before you. He says, I'm going to show you my name. And he says, I'm going to show you my glory. All three of those, the same thing. The glory of God is the name of God, which is all the goodness of God. And so he hides Moses in a cleft of rock. And God goes by and his receding quarters pass by what God says is, is the Lord proclaims his name. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. What is that? Gospel. Yet. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. What is that? Law. Moses bowed to the ground then and worshipped God. Did you hear it? God's name, God's glory, all of God's goodness summarized saying, I am a God who forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin, and yet does not leave the guilty unpunished, but punishes. I am a God who forgives and I am a God who never forgives. Law and gospel are God's glory. It's the most important passage, one of the most important passages in world literature together with the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. This passage functioned as the closest thing ancient Judaism had to a creedal statement. I will forgive the guilty, but I will not clear the guilty. Every sin must be punished. Every transgression face the bar of justice. Every debt must be paid. But I am going to forgive all of your sins. How is it possible? God is saying that until you understand these two together, law and gospel together, you will not see his glory and you will not know his name and all of his goodness will not be passing before you. Because the law and the gospel meet in the person of God 
as he declares his glory and his goodness. And that means the law and the gospel are going to meet in the person of Jesus Christ when he goes to the cross. On the cross of Christ, mercy and justice kiss. Law and gospel embrace. Other religions give you a founder, but Christianity gives you a rescuer. Other religions see you drowning and they throw you a book on swimming. But Jesus sees you drowning and he dives in to drown in your place so that you can escape alive. On the cross, we see that rescue. On the cross, Jesus pays the debt that you and I could never have paid. It's what what theologians call substitutionary atonement, that he takes your licks for you so that you can go free with all of his righteousness. It's Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It's Matthew 20. The Son of Man, Jesus says, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It's Galatians 2.20. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 3.18. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Romans 3, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did it to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be both just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus, to be both the lawgiver and the gospel bringer. And here on the cross, those just demands of God's law are fulfilled through God's gospel grace in the sacrifice of Jesus. It's way different from some kind of generic love of God that just overlooks everything like, a, like an absent-minded grandfather giving you a quarter and saying, have a good time. Uh, you know, that kind of love of God costs him nothing. It's cheap. The law shows us a different God. A God who is just. And that kind of God, a holy God, choosing to love you, that kind of love cost him dearly. It cost him something. It cost him his son, his only son, the son he loves. For God to forgive a big shameful sinner like me. For God to forgive somebody who has transgressed his law on purpose every day of my life. For God to forgive one who's been willfully disobedient and repeatedly and always on purpose. For God to forgive one who's rebelled against him and dishonored his name and done shameful things. For God to forgive one who has turned against his will. For God to love one who has opposed him to his face. For God to love one who, and, who has become broken and distorted. For God to love that kind of person, a person like me, a person like you. For a just and holy God to love that kind of person costs God everything because his justice must be answered. Someone had to take the sin. It doesn't just go away. Someone had to carry the shame, and that's where Jesus steps up. And he says, I carry your shame for you. And it destroys him, and he, through that destruction, destroys it. It's costly for God to love a sinner like me. We're dealing with that kind of God. And that means in his eyes, friends, you were worth the cost. You think of the kid who, who saves up all his money because he wants a set of Legos and he goes to the, the Lego store, and he hands over his money and he's looking at that set. It's one of the big boxes with all sorts of stuff you could do with it. And, and he's just waiting 
He's just waiting for that clerk to finish it up, do the transaction, put it in the bag and hand him the bag. And as he gets that bag and goes back with his folks to the car, there's a smile on his face and his eyes are huge and he is just dreaming of how much time he's going to have with this set of Legos. And friends, the face of that child is the face of God your Father if you have Jesus because you are his treasure. He treasures you that much that he would give up his own son in order to gain you as his son or daughter. A couple years ago at our denomination's General Assembly, Billy Graham, uh, our Tim Keller told uh, a story about Billy Graham's 1955 crusade at Cambridge. In 1955, Graham was invited to speak at Cambridge by a small group of Christians there, and John Stott had been instrumental in arranging for Graham to speak, and almost immediately the letters to the editor started coming to the Times of London. I'm sure that Graham is a nice man, but he's the wrong sort of Christian the sort that believes that the blood of Jesus is required for salvation. And we all know that sort of thing doesn't go over here. Further, I can't imagine what the fine young men and women from Cambridge can learn from a man like this. Billy found the prospect of doing a full-scale university mission at Cambridge terrifying. He talked to John Stott and said, John, I'm deeply concerned and in much thought about this mission. I've never felt more inadequate and totally underprepared and as I think over the possibility for messages, I realize how shallow and weak my presentations are. When Billy arrived, John arranged for him to talk privately with C.S. Lewis, who was then a, a fellow at Maudlin College. And the three of them met in Lewis's rooms at Maudlin and, and spent an hour or so together. And Graham said, you know, I was afraid I'd be intimidated, but I was relieved to find that C.S. Lewis immediately put me at ease. But the British press was predicting that Cambridge students would cause a riot during the talks, just as they had done years earlier when D.L. Moody had spoken there. The previous year, when Graham first had visited the UK, questions were asked in Parliament as to whether he should be allowed to land in Great Britain. Newspapers were against the visit. Church leaders who had initially given the invitation backed down. The Archbishop of Canterbury told Graham that he was not welcome. The American ambassador warned him not to come. This time, Graham was warned to expect the worst, specifically at Cambridge. Britain's elite didn't want to be told about ancient blood sacrifices and an angry God and a perceived need for salvation by some poorly educated American, you know, nonconformist preacher with a southern draw. Worried Graham. So he set about creating erudite, sophisticated, scholarly lessons. They were completely different from what he typically gave. He was talking about Heidegger and Kierkegaard and the intersection of philosophy and faith and intellectual reasons for the credibility of the Christian message. And, and he had one lesson planned for each night that he was going to preach at Great St. Mary's Church. And, and, you know, at the time, there were about 8,000 students at Cambridge. And when Graham preached that first night, there were 2,000 of the students and faculty there to hear him. On that first Monday and Tuesday night, he delivered his prepared remarks and nothing happened. Nothing. And so on that Wednesday night, Graham set aside everything he'd prepared to say. And he said, let me tell you what I know about the cross of Jesus Christ. Dick Lucas was there that night and he shares his eyewitness account. He says, I'll never forget that night. I was in the totally packed chancel sitting on the floor with the Regis Professor of Divinity sitting on one leg and the chaplain of a college who was a future bishop on the other. And both of these were very fine men, but completely against the idea that you needed salvation from sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
So dear Billy got up that night and he began at Genesis and he went right through the whole Bible and he talked about every single blood sacrifice you can imagine. The blood was just flowing all over the place, everywhere for three-fourths of an hour and both my neighbors were terribly embarrassed by this crude proclamation of the blood of Christ. It was everything they disliked and everything they dreaded about religion. But at the end of the sermon, Billy Graham dismissed the audience and invited anyone who wanted to stay behind and make a commitment to Christ. And that night, to everyone's shock, 400 Cambridge students, men and women, stayed behind. Decades later, Christian leaders around the world still look back on that Wednesday night in Great St. Mary's Church, Cambridge, as the event that forever changed their lives and set their futures on a course of service to Christ and to his world. Scholars look back on that 45 minutes as the moment that changed the entire religious landscape of Great Britain. The impact was such that Graham later dined with the Queen. He was interviewed by David Frost on BBC. He appeared in the pages of the national press only this time in positive stories. Christians found their non-Christian friends asking them if they were going to hear Graham. Prime Minister Winston Churchill summoned him to number 10 Downing Street for tea. One historian wrote this. He said, perhaps Graham's greatest legacy is that he loved the British people. And he did it by telling them about the blood of Jesus Christ, where law and gospel kiss in the flesh of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the blood of Christ. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for your gospel that you will not condemn. You do not acquit because you punish your son in our place so that you might acquit us and give us blessing and grace. We thank you, Lord. We consecrate to you the elements on this table, Lord, that you would preach good news to us that we might bring the welcome of Jesus to St. Louis. In his name we pray. Amen.